Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, hi, Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, what does it really mean biologically to be a woman? That's one of the central questions Kat Bohannon explores in her new book, Eve, How the Female Body Drove 200 Million Years of Human Evolution. Bohannon makes the case that until recently, scientists have effectively ignored women. The majority of subjects in clinical trials are male, and too many researchers still mistakenly assume that sex differences are mainly about sex organs, rather than a panoply of biological and physiological features that evolved in the female body over millions of years. We talked to Bohannon about what it will take to, quote, tear down the male norm and put better science in its place. Join us. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. What if we took the story of evolution and centered women? We focus specifically on how the female body evolved. Well, that's what Kat Bohannon does in her new book, Eve, in hopes of getting the latest answers to our basic questions about our bodies, like why do women live longer? Why do we menstruate? And what's the point of menopause? Now, at this point, you may be asking yourself, why don't we have the answers to these questions? Bohannon explores that too, not just how the female body has been understudied and deprioritized in science for years, but also the impact that that's had. Kat Bohannon, welcome to Forum. Hi, thanks. Happy to be here. Well, glad to have you and would love for you to tell our listeners about the genesis of this book, which was basically in a movie theater about a decade ago. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, um, a big sci-fi fan, and I was there watching the movie Prometheus, yeah? And so this is supposed to be the prequel to Alien, 
Right. So a lot of things are going to go wrong in this movie, and you just go in expecting that. But you don't expect this moment where um, the main character sort of stumbles into uh, a medical center on a spaceship. Now, she's been impregnated with a vicious alien squid, as you do, right? And she's like, (laughs) I very much need a C-section. Actually, I think she sort of groans and says, cesarean, right? And then, you know, the med pod is beep boop and says, "Um, I'm sorry, but this med pod is calibrated for male patients only. And then, you know, she basically gives herself with a laser and staples a C-section and a lot of tentacles come out and it's pretty bloody. Anyway, she does survive. It's kind of amazing. But, you know, I'm sitting there in the audience and a lot of women, right, of both cis women and genderqueer women are in the audience and we're watching this and we're like, who the hell does that? Who sends a multi-trillion dollar expedition into space and doesn't have equipment that works on women? But I happen to know that actually mm, most of medicine, yeah, pretty much pretty much us, we're the ones who do that. And how does most of medicine do that? You can start broadly and then we can drill down, but, but how does it do that? Well, the central thing that's going on is that um, before a technique comes into play in medicine, before a treatment path, before you get anything like a prescription drug, what you have is biomedical research, and then you have basic science before it. What you have is a lot of rats, basically. We do a lot of good and sometimes terrible things to rats in labs, right? Now, when you're building your experiments, when you're trying to test, for example, the early stages of one drug or another, you want to control for your confounds. You want to make your questions as simple and as clean as possible. And the funny thing about mammals is that we have estrus in the female mammal. Now, for human beings, that's our menstrual cycle, right? And we have these big peaks and troughs of our hormones going up and down. And that affects just about every tissue in that body, because just about every tissue in the body has sex hormone receptors that do different stuff, right? And it's all patterned a little differently, but like it's there. It's an effect. So there was this kind of agreement in biology. I don't think anyone sat down and, you know, like nodded their head and smoked a cigarette and was like, we're not going to study females, but that is what happened, right? What happened is they just decided to only study males. And that meant by the time a drug ever got up to like a clinical trial moment, it had only been tested on males, right? So they didn't actually know what was going on. And then once you were in the clinical trial space, uh, women were under-enrolled for various reasons. One was to protect unborn babies because you don't want to, like, have a clinical trial and have a female subject taking a drug and then a bunch of birth defects. That's, you know, that's a public good. We're, we're down right. with that. But that meant that for a very long time, there were regulations in the U.S. and elsewhere that you couldn't enroll women of reproductive age in your trial unless there was a really important reason. Well, I would say the really important reason is that we exist, for example, like from age 13 or so to 50. But (laughs) for the sake of clinical trials, um, we just weren't there in the data. And that meant that for a lot of drugs that came onto the market for a very long time, they simply hadn't been tested in female bodies at all. You write about being flabbergasted by this realization. I I think Mm -hmm. even just to the extent of it. So not only when we're doing research with animals or with rats, it's male rats. And then not only when we're doing clinical trials, we're doing it with almost entirely male groups, or at least not with females between the ages of 13 and 50, essentially. Talk about why you were flabbergasted by that realization. 
there are a few different reasons. Uh, one, I uh, am a cis woman. I've got a uh, biologically female body, uh, pretty obviously so, and I've taken drugs. So, <laughs> you know, there's that moment in your life where you're like, um, what now? Yeah. It was also that I had taught and done research at some of the top universities in the world because I'm a privileged person and lucky and, you know, um, and that meant that there I was at Columbia University and I simply had no idea that we weren't testing uh, females. My work was computational stuff. Like I didn't even use human subjects. I was like typey typey on the computer. That's like where my research was. And so that meant that I didn't realize we were only using male rats. So that was flabbergasting to me. Um, it was also really important because I happened to know already that um, female bodies, and we've only recently learned this, process opoid drugs differently. Our livers metabolize them differently. That's the really big deal. Opoids are uh, a type of painkiller, okay? And when a typical uh, female patient takes these drugs, the profile of uh, how long the effect stays in the system, of how much you need to take to get the relief you're looking for, is markedly different from the male. But we found that out after the fact, after it was already on the market. Yes. And after we were already, we were already determining, you know, prescriptions, the appropriate amounts, mm -hmm. and just giving them to women across the board without really realizing, uh, well, at least as you were saying, you were flabbergasted because you take drugs, without really realizing that that really hadn't been tested, whether or not that was an appropriate amount for yeah. women. A hundred percent. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, in biology, only just recently, we're starting to get more of those mechanisms for why that might be the case. But that's really coming out in the last 10, 15, maybe 20 years, right? Like we're actually in the middle of this big push to study sex differences because there was this huge gap before, mm -hmm. right? So we're in the middle of this paradigm shift where things are really, it's just the wild west out there in the lab. You look for a sex difference and you find one, turns out. We don't know which of these are going to be important in the long run, right? Because this is like not just cutting edge stuff, sometimes bleeding edge, you know? But it does mean that um, really smart people are working hard on it. But meanwhile, we have to do things like say, oh, have a different dosage learning after the fact. Yes. And that's why you have said essentially, in many ways, women have been guinea pigs or people with female bodies have been with regard to how things play out. I want to invite our listeners in just to get their reactions. First, for example, did you know this about medical research? What is your reaction to what you're hearing? What questions do you have about the female body, the evolution of the female body? Specifically, Kat Bohannon has done this. She has centered women in evolution. She has centered women in ways that science has not. In her new book, Eve, How the Female Body Drove 200 Million Years of Human Evolution. And you can join us by emailing forum at kqed.org, posting on our social channels, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Discord, at KQED Forum, or by calling 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. And a listener on Discord has written in, the justification I frequently heard for focusing on studying men is that they have fewer hormonal fluctuations over time. But it seems to me this argument is based on a kind of normative attitude towards maleness that views other non-male people as abnormal somehow. From another mm. perspective, it could be abnormal that men don't experience the same hormonal fluctuations that mm -hmm. women do. Such a great point because, mm -hmm. you know, what is the message that it it sends and then reinforces to say, well, women really complicate experiments, so let's just not study them, you know? Mm -hmm. 
Absolutely. I think that's really, really a smart perspective. And whether or not the listener knew um, actually is coming up quite a lot in basic uh, biological research right now, because there are some hormone fluctuations in the androgens in uh, male typical bodies. But what's interesting is that you don't have that long sweep, those those peaks and valleys that you have with like a menstrual cycle in the human being. Um, but you also um, have a different relationship to the circadian rhythm. By that, I mean the time of day. It turns out part of why it sucks so much for uh, cis women to work night shift is because our um, our estrogens are exquisitely uh, tied to what time of day it is, actually. And part of the reason that menopausal and postmenopausal women might get those uh, hot flashes at night is because that's the time of day when your estrogens tend to plummet the most, right? So and there are similar fluctuations we're only just starting to learn about in males. I can't wait to find out what we learn because I think it's going to improve male lives too. So this whole notion though, this lack of understanding of this and this whole notion that you have a cleaner experiment if Mm -hmm. you have males is something that you describe in science. I mean, it has a term, the male norm. Can you explain Mm -hmm. what that is and also how it has been implemented? Like, for example, when you describe clinical trials in the rules that have governed clinical trials, for example, but, but other ways as well. Yeah, so I emphasized uh, the word male, the term male norm in the book, in part because it appears about equally as often in the scientific literature as the term male bias. Mm. And for a reader, the frame male bias sounds like somehow we're disadvantaging males, you know? <laughs> so I was like, mm, let's go with male norm. They use that as much. Um, so the deal with male norm is essentially that. Um, in uh, basic science and in all the way up through clinical trials, what you have, what you're building is what's called a model, right? So you might have what's called a murine model. That means a mouse model of a certain kind of disease, like a certain kind of. Uh, cardiovascular disease, right? And you call that your mouse model. But the thing is, right now, what we really have is a singular model, right? Because we're mostly working with the male body. What we probably need is a dual model, right? Mm -hmm. Now, once we build the dual model, then we get to have all of those wonderful nuances that might tell us more about trans reality, that might tell us more all the way up the mammalian chain where it gets complicated. Yeah. And might make us realize that, uh, as you say in the book, you know, it's not just a function of having a body, a basic body with different sort of bits, I think is the (laughs) word that you use. Yeah, we're not a Mr. Potato Head. Right. It's a whole interaction of biological experiences and evolutions and changes and so on. Mm -hmm. And I cannot wait to dig into more of those after the break. Stay with us, listeners. We're talking with Kat Bohannon, and you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with Kat Bohannon, who's written a book that really sets out to turn our male-centric understanding of the human body and human history. It really sets out to topple that. The book is called Eve, How the Female Body Drove 200 Million Years of Human Evolution. And you can send your questions uh, or comments about what you're hearing to forum at kqed.org. That's our email address by posting them on our social channels at KQED Forum or by calling 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. So Kat, while you were looking at all of this, realizing just how much female bodies have been omitted from medical science, you also realize that to truly fill the gaps in our understanding that we we have to better understand the female body, that we have to go back to our origins. Mm -hmm. And you ended up going back more than 200 million years. (laughs) Well, you know, I lack ambition. So (laughs) I just, I aim small. Um, No, it's true. It's not a small book. But don't worry, the last third or so is the notes in the bibliography. I I put some jokes in there too. It's okay. It's okay. Yes. It was Mm -hmm. important for you to make it readable, very readable for people. Yeah, I think science should belong to everybody. You know, I think I think it's important that we have a way in because we get locked in our little training silos, even in the sciences we do. You know, we just we're in our little holes and we don't talk to other people. But this is a big enough project that we actually need everybody talking about it. And that means we have to go outside our comfort zones, go talk to other disciplines and also bring in people from the humanities and the general public. And I have to be honest, when I was reading the book, I thought to myself, I had no idea I even needed this book as much as, as I do. Oh, um, thank you. Because it, it is something that you, you – I, I definitely knew that women were not being studied. Female bodies for a long, for a long time had been neglected by medical science. I'm certainly mm-hmm. familiar with sort of the idea mm-hmm. of the male norm, but I hadn't realized how much it had persisted until now and that mm-hmm. I had accepted that change was really happening and mm-hmm. that, um, that it really wasn't. You know, for example, the listener writes, what about the way the COVID vaccines were recommended for pregnant women, although they were excluded from the clinical trials? You know, examples mm-hmm. like that abound. Mm-hmm. Um, but but I do want to go back because what you learn about the female body's evolution really is fascinating. And you you discover the first mammal to nurse young, essentially how milk came to be. Can you tell us about this mammal? Oh, her name is Morgie. And I didn't actually have to name her because the Smithsonian did actually gave her that nickname on oh. a little placard. It's Morganica Don. She's uh, what I would call an exemplar genus. So she's more than one species, but she's um, she's this cute little furry weasel rat uh, that lived about <laughs> 200 to 205 million years ago under the feet of dinosaurs. Actually under the feet, right? Because she's probably burrowing. Um, and so she's, she's living in their rumble space and she actually still lives 
lays eggs, kind of like the duck platypus still does. You know, fun fact. So she lays eggs, but she is the first mammal. And when she lays her eggs, she has to keep them wet. So she secretes this kind of, well, frankly, it's kind of like a mucus, this kind of goo that helps keep them wet until they hatch in their little burrow. And then they nibble on the goo and then they start licking around. And eventually, actually, she starts secreting more of the goo. It's loaded with immuno agents. And eventually, well, actually, that's where milk comes from. And it's across her whole body, and then eventually it becomes specialized. We're able to do it through nipples and so on. Oh, yeah. First milk, then nipple. This thing hanging off my chest wall way later. Like, we don't (laughs) actually, like, way, way, way later. Like, basically now. Basically, the boob happens now. Yeah. And another area that you explore that I really found fascinating, too, is fat and how women's bodies hold and use fat that's biologically distinct from men. Talk about this. Oh, man. Yeah. So, um, so far, what we can see uh, in the literature, and this isn't settled science, but it's really tantalizing, and there's a lot of evidence, okay? That's what I mean by cutting-edge stuff, okay? So, um, you know you have fat all over your body. Some of it's inside. Some of it's more uh, just under your skin. The stuff you see the most, obviously, is just under your skin. And uh, cis women tend to have this extra fat around our butts and upper thighs and hips and the formal terms gluteofemoral fat. Now, the trick is, is that those fat deposits seem to specially store these lipids uh, that are hard for us to make inside our bodies from other parts. We tend to just get them straight from diet. They're called LCPOFAs, and you can look up the formal term. Anyway, so it's like, oh, okay, this kind of fat specially stores this stuff. Well, it turns out that stuff is really, really important for building baby brains and retinas. And in fact, it seems to be metabolically protected, you know, first place to gain, last place to lose, until the third trimester of pregnancy and then through lactation, where it's like the baby is just hoover down mom's butt, right, through the placenta and then through um, through breast milk uh, to build out presumably this, uh, well, its own fat stores, but also that brain and those eyeballs, right? And so, and this is a very long evolved trait. And I couldn't help but, you know, I was an anorexic teenager. You know, when I look mm. in the mirror, it's complicated and was yeah. actually got down to like 98 pounds. I'm good now. But, you know, so I look in the mirror and I look at my butt, which is not small. And I'm like, oh, I know where you came from. Right. It gave me a whole new frame for that. And that, for me, at least, was very freeing. Like, oh, this is not extra. This isn't a moral space. This is an evolutionary space. Yeah, you're really highlighting one of the the benefits and one one of the important reasons that this research is so important. You're you're also talking about the kinds of important questions that learning about these things that are specific to the female body can inspire. Like for example, you started wondering then if we remove this fat or work to work off this fat, how are we potentially affecting, you know, a fetus if we want to be pregnant later on? <laughs> so this is a tricky thing. I'm waiting for someone to do that study. Um, you'll see in the book how that goes. Right. So um, the thing is, is that our f- subcutaneous fat, in fact, all of the fat depots in our body are now by many scientists who work in the field starting, we're starting to think that this is not just, you know, different deposits, but rather an organ system, 
right? So that little like thing hanging down from your arm, especially now at my age, you know, that isn't like a bit of extra food. It's actually a visible part of one of your organs, okay? <laughs> and different parts of this organ system seem to work differently, right? So the fat under your arms doesn't seem to store these special lipids we just talked about in the same way that your gluteofemoral fat does. So what if you get liposuction on your butt and then you go on to have a baby? That was my question, right? And the answer is, we don't know. Hopefully there's some fail-safes. Um, hopefully it doesn't affect the content of your breast milk. Hopefully all is well. And the body is good at building in fail-safes when it comes to reproduction. But I think it would be good for us to settle that science instead of treating different parts of women's bodies as just um, cosmetic. Yeah. Well, listener Claudia writes, can you talk about evolving research about menopause and osteoporosis treatments to help women to avoid fracture risks and so on? Sure. Now, let me give you a really important disclaimer. PhD, not MD. Please talk to your doctor uh, if you have something that's concerning you about your body. Okay. So, um, one of the really interesting things I found, uh, which is sort of a new thing around uh, hormonal therapy for uh, perimenopause and menopausal patients, is that um, where you really are seeing a lot of that cortical uh, bone loss, right? So your bone's thin, and then eventually you get diagnosed with osteoporosis, right? So the process starts before you're diagnosed. Um, that's why you get diagnosed. Actually, for the bone loss that's associated specifically with menopause, most of that loss is actually happening in a really small window, in a three-year window right around when you have your last period. Like you might not be diagnosed until like you're 60, but actually most of that loss that might be setting you on that path, we don't know if it's causal, but we know that that's when it's happening happening is right around your menopausal transition. And there are some studies now that show patients who are on uh, hormone therapy during that period, usually for uh, menopausal or perimenopausal symptoms, basically to make it, you know, suck less to go through this, um, have some protective effect. In other words, they're a little bit more resistant, a little bit less likely to be diagnosed with osteoporosis, or at least the more uh, damaging kinds later on. And this is where you're really starting to see some interesting research around uh, perimenopause and menopause. We're starting to think about like, what does it mean to transition? Is that a critical window for treatment? And if so, when can we start treating that more seriously as opposed to like a, oh, I hear you're sweating a bit. Here's a pill maybe, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, and let me remind listeners, yes, what observations have you made about your own body or behaviors that have left you wondering, why is that? What questions do you have about the evolution of the female body? Or what's your reaction to... The omission of female bodies in medical research. You can tell us at 866-733-6786, email forum at kqed.org. Find us on our social channels at KQED Forum. So I want to ask you in terms of underexplored differences between the male and the female bodies mm -hmm. about some of the things you learned around hearing that, that <laughs> they essentially have very different tuning, I think, is the way that you put it. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, it's uh, It was one of those things, I don't know if it was for you when I got to that moment in the research, and then you'll see in the book where you're like, oh, well, that's different. So, um, right, so the primate sensory array, which is to say your face and your ears, right, how you're sensing the world primarily, 
you know, up at the front of your head. This evolves in an ancient canopy of uh, uh, fruiting trees. Uh, earliest primates are evolving in that environment. And because of the nature of that environment, our uh our ears began to change, right? Um, so the range of pitches that we were able to hear had to shift to accommodate communicating in this whole new environment because we used to be ground-based, right? So you go up the tree and now, okay, sound is different, right? What do I do? And what's interesting about the long-term tale of uh, that basic evolutionary shift is that not only are there sex differences, but you see this interesting pattern of hearing loss in human men that doesn't kick in until much later, if it does at all, in human women, right? So the typical female ear is tuned to slightly higher pitches. Um, I don't know if you have ever had like a, you know, a high fidelity system, but you know, you, you can change which pitches you am amplify in your mix effectively. Well, it turns out your brain and your ears are doing that too. Um, and uh, female typical hearing is strongly associated with the range of pitches associated with baby cries. We're annoyingly more attuned to this stuff, and it's a long-evolved thing. That doesn't mean the guys can't hear them, but we hear them. But it also is interesting because it might be tied to that pattern of hearing loss that actually starts around age 25 in typical male bodies, where they start losing the higher range of their pitches. Now, the reason that matters for you and me is that, well, women's voices are a little bit higher pitched usually. Um, and so if the males are losing the high end of our voices, uh, over time, over time, over time. That means by the time they arrive in the boardroom, well, they may literally not hear us very well. Yeah, like literally tuning <laughs> like actually, us out. <laughs> like, not on purpose, even though, with some sympathy there. Like right. that's not going to tell you why they care less about what we say. Like that's not going to tell you why sexism exists, but it is going to tell you like, oh, you actually really have difficulty hearing me. Okay, what can we do about that? <laughs> yeah, and not just... Hearing differences, but visual differences, which or mm -hmm. visual perception differences, I should mm -hmm. say, because I I was having this um, not a disagreement, but it was just this realization. I just got this new chair. It was this sort of cream colored chair, and I could see a very distinct sort of like pink cast coming from this green chair. Mm. And my male bodied spouse was like, "I see nothing." Mm. <laughs> Anyway, can you talk, not to say that what you wrote about is operating here, but can you talk a little bit about visual perception differences in male and female bodies? Sure. Um, as for your partner, I don't know if that person has a Y chromosome, but uh, you said male body. So if that person does, then uh, you might want to check if that person is red, green, colorblind, right? Because um, that's actually a known mutation that happens... Um, on the uh, X chromosome. It's an X-linked trait. That's what that means. Uh, and they actually have, if you have this mutation and you only have one X chromosome instead of two, well, then you might have this problem where it's very hard for you to distinguish between red and green, right? It kind of, it kind of, uh, my partner has this and he's like, it's kind of brown. I don't know how to describe it. Like he often will tell me, bring the red thing over here and it's like a giant brown blanket. And I'm like, that is, that is not red, but I love you. Um, right. So there's that like subtle thing. Um, whether or not it's true that you are a tetrachromat, I could not say. 
Um, And you probably don't know either, because even if you have the ability to see uh, this wide range of colors, which some females do, as I say in the book, um, that doesn't mean that you will be conscious of it because we grow up in the perceptive worlds that we have. And if there's nothing useful to you to train your brain to recognize these different colors, it might just tune that signal out. Yeah. And by a touch of chromat, you're saying people who can see sort of, you know, that most of the world sees in three color dimensions, but tetrachromat, tetrachromat see in four color dimensions. Yes, 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 yes. Which actually can produce like millions more colors, it turns out, just like, like they have, like birds have this. In other words, there are some women who, because of their genetic makeup, have eyes more like birds, um, which is kind of crazy. They're like super, you know, secret superheroes, right? But uh, most of them don't know it. So I want to take this perception question a little bit further because you introduce us to the topic of perception by describing when you were in college and worked as a nude model in art school. Oh, yeah. It's an easy way to make happened. money. Yeah. Well, I mean, okay. for someone for someone like me, you know, being naked was was an option, um, and there's plenty of plenty of privilege there. But yes, yes, I was a professional naked person. I was. I would go into a room and I would take off all my clothes in front of a bunch of teenage males, which you know, on the face of it, sounds like a nightmare. Um, but you know, I'm no longer afraid of those things because I made it my actual job for a bit. Anyway, um, and yeah, one of the interesting things that happened there that I noticed is that, you know, um, this was the uh, 90s, the late 90s. And so it was very common. uh, Everyone would go out for a smoke break, right? You know, artists, cigarettes, please don't smoke people. But, you know, it's something that they did. And so I got to, like, put on my robe and walk around the easels and sort of see my body taking form on canvas, which was also both nerve-wracking and freeing. I don't know. But the thing that was really distinctive about it um, was that the male students uh, all drew my body breasts too big okay Hmm. like like cartoon big okay and it wasn't that they were trying to draw cartoons necessarily it wasn't like a stylistic thing it's just like for some reason they could not get it proportionally accurate to my body (laughs) whereas the uh the female students for whatever reason didn't have that problem but what was cool and interesting is like over the course of a semester right because this is like a college class over the course of my semester of nakedness The male students would actually start making the breasts more in proportion because what they did is effectively they started learning how to draw what their eyes had actually seen and not what their brains had done with what their eyes had seen. Yeah, it raised lots of questions for you around around that, just in terms of why things were shifting, you know, (laughs) in Mm -hmm. a sensory way. Can you talk a little bit more? We're coming up on a break, but just... You know, how you begin to answer this question about perception differences now after you've done a lot of this research? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I mean, for the for the boys in the classroom, um, and as far as I know, they all identified as boys, and it was the 90s, and we had different language. Um, they uh, actually were probably more fixated on them, which is actually a technical term for vision. Their eyes stared at my breasts more, And that weirdly made them literally loom larger in their brains when they tried to render their reality on paper. Fascinating. Terry writes, I hope her book becomes the Barbie film of the nonfiction world for the next year. She's hysterical. It's reframed things that I've taken for granted my whole life. It's been incredibly helpful. We're talking with Kat Bohannon, researcher, author 
of the book Eve, How the Female Body Drove 200 Million Years of Human Evolution. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with Kat Bohannon about the evolution of the female body, the underexplored differences between the female and the male form, and how reliance on a, quote, male norm in scientific research has harmed women. All of this Kat covers in her new book, Eve, How the Female Body Drove 200 Million Years of Human Evolution. So what are your questions about the human body, about female evolution? What observations have you made about your own body or behaviors that have left you wondering, why is that? Carlette writes, I've always thought it was wrong that medications are typically given the same to all, regardless of sex, weight, etc., etc. You know, Kat, you said something interesting early on where you said that studying specific bodies helps all bodies. Can you just expand on that a little bit, what you mean by that when you say that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, look, trans women, like all women, have been understudied and undercared for in both uh, biological research and in clinical settings, right? So we can do better. We can just do better, okay? But what's interesting from a scientific perspective here is that um, a lot of what we know about hormone therapy for cis women, for, for women who have ovaries or who have them taken out because cancer and then you're trying to prevent that big onslaught of early menopause when you have it surgically removed, um, it comes from these either very older bodies, right, uh, people who are taking oral contraceptives or from cancer patients, right? But it's kind of hard to suss out what the risk profile should be. For example, you might have heard that many oral contraceptives for most cis women um, will increase your stroke risk, right? But we've only just started to find out that actually if you have a transdermal mode, and that means, in other words, you have a little patch usually on your like arm or stomach or your butt. It's about the size of your thumbnail, and that's where you're getting your uh, your hormones. It bypasses the liver, and you don't get that stroke risk increase, which is also hot tip, good for perimenopause. <laughs> um, so, you know, think about it. Talk to your doctor. Um, but what's interesting there is that we have this incredible opportunity in this research space 
to study the bodies of trans women who are often longitudinally for a long time taking hormone therapy, mm-hmm. right, to see mm-hmm. what it does in these bodies. Um, and there's a, there's a mix of things. Like uh, other women, when uh, trans women are taking certain kinds of hormone therapy, they do get a little bump up in their stroke risk. And again, it makes a difference if you do it uh, through intramuscular injection or transdermally or taking it orally. When you take it orally, when you take the pill, that's when you're involving the liver. That's the takeaway there, right? But it's also true that there is a beautiful study that by many measures, uh, cardiovascular health in the peripheral system, which is um, how flexible your blood vessels are in, in your finger you know, in places away from the center, from your heart, um, which has to do with the wear and tear on your cardiovascular system. Trans women who have been taking uh, these hormones for a long time often have, by those measures, better heart health than cis men, right? And cis men, as they age, are notorious for having problems in these spaces, right? Which is to say, if we better study trans women who are taking these hormones, we might be able to save a lot of lives of cis men. And then going on, we might be able to make menopause suck less for other women who are taking hormones for menopausal symptoms, right? So in other words, if you can take a step back and think like a scientist and think about opportunities for study, right, then, oh, man, we're going to get a lot of knowledge if we just start including more types of bodies in our research. Yes. It's one of the things that I would... love to see studied more is how female bodies live longer, how women live longer than Mm -hmm. men. Because Mm -hmm. in your book, you really help us see just the degree to which that is true. We, We all know this, but the extent to which that's true is quite dramatic. Yeah, yeah. And what's interesting is that across many mammalian species, you see that female longevity boost, which is to say in mammals, at least a lot of the time, so long as you're not pregnant, uh, the female body is just better at not dying. Like, and that's the actual takeaway of menopause, it turns out. Congratulations, you're still not dead. That's what (laughs) menopause is actually for, right? The evolutionary path there is not like, okay, grandma, help with the kids. Um, And that's the grandmother hypothesis, which you can get into in the book, (laughs) right? It's actually more that like the entire hominin line, well, we don't know where exactly, it might just be in Homo sapiens, starts managing by many measures to live longer than we used to. Right, a 60-year-old chimp is falling the heck apart. But a 60-year-old uh, human being, so long as they've had good health care and, you know, has been doing well by themselves, actually is, is doing way better, is doing way better. And that's senescence, that's aging, right? But it turns out that, well, the female human body, by many measures, is just a little bit better at this living longer thing. Yeah. Now, paradoxically, after, if we do have menopause, after we pass menopause and our uh, estrogen, particularly our estradiol, which is a type of estrogen, just crashes through the floor, then we get this sudden uptick in heart health risk and slightly more rapid aging in a few different you know, systems in our bodies. And we're still trying to figure that out in the lab too, right? So you do have a paradox. It's called the frailty longevity paradox, where older women have more health complaints. But again, still not dead. Still actually not dead every year, and more of the guys, still more of them dead, right? And so if that's the case, 
if this if there's this obvious variable, right? We talk about the binary and that's a very social word, but like there is just an obvious variable, right, when it comes to big spaces of research like this. And if most cis women are living longer every year and most cis men are dropping like flies, we should probably figure out why. It would be good to have a sense of the deep mechanisms. And actually, some really, really good scientists are working very hard on that problem right now. That's the actual future, I think, of gerontology. Yeah. You do talk about uh, a quiet revolution in the science of womanhood brewing Mm -hmm. that... While, yes, the majority of science has effectively ignored the female body, something is happening. We've just kept touching on it. But but describe what is happening. What is happening, and I'm going to be a little um, dramatic here, but I actually think it's warranted. What is happening is a paradigm shift. Um, so a paradigm shift, what is that? I'm not going to get into Thomas Kuhn. Okay, a paradigm shift <laughs> is when your understanding of the world um, radically changes in some way and sort of your entire society can't go back to understanding reality in quite the same way anymore. A paradigm shift was when we figured out that bacteria can cause infections, that it's not like an actually evil fog that drifted in from Asia to cause the plague, right? But actually, okay, bacteria, what did that require? That required like, you know, microscopes and different models of the body. A lot of different things went into it. And it actually took a long time to change that old understanding of what infection was to the new one, right? Um, And I think we're actually in the bio logical sciences in the middle of a similar paradigm shift when it comes to studying the deep pervasiveness of sex differences. Now, these are complex systems, and complex systems behave complexly. Uh, That's your body. Turns out that's what we are. We're complex things behaving complexly. But as we uncover all of these new crazy things about sex differences, it's its really pushing us, I think, like I said before, to that dual model of research and that dual path of treatment, um, which is going to have obvious knock-on effects for how we live our lives now and try to be healthy. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, Beth writes, have been raving about Capo Hannon's book, and it's one of those books I will have to read multiple times to glean all the wisdom within its pages. Darwin would be so proud. Hmm. He would, actually. He would, actually. There's a deep history of women reading Darwin. It, it used to be a thing that they had to do in secret a long time ago because, you see, Darwin talked a lot about uh, females being the choosy sex, and um, that didn't really suit the uh, mores of the time. So um, there were actually, like, secret reading groups of Darwin <laughs> after it was published with a bunch of women in their freaking corsets. It was great. Anyway, um, yeah, maybe we're coming back. Maybe we're coming back to... Uh, Uh, biology being a thing that is a liberation space for people of all genders. So each chapter in your book covers a feature of the body, milk, womb, legs, brain, voice, Mm -hmm. um, that, that are the book's chapters. What was your thinking behind the format of the book, how to organize the book? Ah, so one of the big things that you do, um, both in biology, when you're thinking about an evolutionary path and what is conserved, uh, that's a formal way of saying what is kept over time. You know, in other words, is there still anything true in fruit fly that is still true in us? It's been a long time since we've been anything like a fly, but like, you know, is there anything that keeps going on in our bodies uh, that started way back then? And so 
that became my, you know, kind of organizing principle for the book. I'm like, okay, where are we, we homo sapiens, on the taxonomic tree? What are the distinguishing traits that make us, in many ways, what we are, that place us where we are? And, and, and what, are there any sex differences in those traits now? And is there any evolutionary story there? And, and is it a fun story to tell? Yeah. So I decided, well, you know, my mother's Catholic. She still sings in the choir. She has feelings about me, but we get along. And uh, I'm an atheist. And um, <laughs> it's fine. Uh, we love each other very much. Anyway, in New York. This is just New York. So um, what I decided is that, well, you know, we have this story, this origin story of one Eve. But the truth is we have many Eves. Actually, we have like billions of Eves, but we have a few specific sorts of points in our evolutionary path where some we speciated, where we became different enough that that body plan was really changing. And I looked right. for where those Eves uh, could be characters that could be a moment of understanding for a reader, a way in to say, where does this thing come from? And I worked with a paleontologist to pick them. So this is essentially, in a way, chronological? <clears throat> very much so. Very much so. Now, each of the chapters, by nature, has to move back and forth in time, right? Because, I don't know, 200 million years is like a hot minute, okay? There's been a bit. There's Things have happened in the evolution of breasts between when we were, like, making milk out of sweaty, hairy patches, no nipples yet, to now, right? But um, for the most part, you know, the chapters move forward in time from our most ancient trait uh, that seems important to tell in this story uh, to our most recent. Well, we are talking with Kat Bohannon, and let me remind listeners that you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Let me go to caller Jim in Santa Clara. Jim, you're on. Thanks, Mina. Uh, my wife and I have wondered for a long time why humans menstruate, and uh, very few other mammals do. It seems like it would be... Well, well, I, Jim, I think we lost you there, but... Uh, I could answer the first part yeah, of it. I you hope I'm not failing him. Sorry about that, Jim. It sounded like you cut out a bit. But I did hear that you really want to know about the periods thing. Like, why the heck do we have them? <laughs> um, and the... Uh, Fair, fair question. I've asked myself that a lot, especially since age 13, and um, ready to be rid of those. Thank you. But and not yet. But um, I think the shortest answer to that is we have periods. Uh, well, one, because an asteroid knocked out a, <laughs> a lot of ancestors uh, for marsupials, uh, and that meant that we now have the kinds of placentas we have, which are more invasive. And also because the human placenta is really invasive, the big difference, let me see if I can say it quickly, the big difference between us and other creatures that don't do quite what we do in our uterus is not that we shed our blood externally necessarily, but that we start building up our uterine lining before the uterus even gets a signal from a fertilized egg. We just start building that up just like on a regular cycle. And the main reason that is, is because, um, well, our, the human baby is really more like a blood-sucking demon fetus. It's just a really invasive, really, really hungry, really uh, metabolically costly pregnancy, the way we do it, right? And so you should think about why we have periods as, oh, we're building up a safety buffer, literally, of tissue uh, between the mother's uh, outer uterine wall and where that baby might latch on if it's coming in. But you'll learn more in the book. Yes, you you do learn more in the book. One of the things that um, you we were talking a little bit about the format and, you know, 
there's sort of a final section on love. You you spent a good part of it focusing on love, also focusing mm-hmm. it on <clears throat> sexism and those connections. But wondering if you could talk a little bit about the insights that you gained around that, this human emotion that we seem to have exclusively. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it, it was really, what really drove it um, is that everyone that I had been talking to while I was working on the book wanted to know about where our mating strategies came from. That's the formal way of saying it. You know, in other words, were we like King Solomon with, you know, one guy and a bunch of wives, uh, as it were, but whatever furry ancestral version of that, right, like a gorilla? Or were we super promiscuous, like a chimp, just having sex kind of with everybody? Um, or were we more monogamous, right? And I was like, well, I guess I better answer that question. And so um, the, one of the best places to look uh, for, you know, the traces of deep time is actually on our bodies, right? So if you want to know whether or not we were more harem-based like a gorilla, well, there are things that we know in other primates that have these kinds of patriarchal harems. Uh, you know, there, there are known sexual dimorphisms. For example, the guy is usually huge. Like, like a male gorilla compared to a female gorilla, there's a lot of size there. Um, also technically true that his balls are smaller. His testicles are just, they don't have to do as much because there isn't as much male-male competition. So it's just like little peanuts. It's just like not a lot going on there. Um, So those are two things that you see. And then if you look at human differences, you can see that actually guys are only slightly bigger. By guys, I mean human cis men who've gone through puberty. They're only slightly larger, slightly more muscular um, than the average um, human female. And so that isn't telling us a story of like, one guy and many wives, or at least, you know, deep in our body plan. It actually gives us more of a story of maybe promiscuity, maybe monogamy. And there are a few Mm -hmm. other measures I look at, too, some of which are not appropriate for radio. Yeah. Well, fascinating. We started the conversation talking about research. And I guess, what what can we do to better advocate for ourselves. I'm very optimistic because of the the revolution or the paradigm shift that you describe as happening, but we're still in the meantime. Yes. <laughs> so, yes. yes. What can we do to better advocate for ourselves in the face of some of the gaps that have been left? Hmm. Well, I hope in the book that I can give my readers some new frames of understanding. Uh, We all have the best authority on what it's been like to live in each of our own individual bodies, right? That's a, that's a deep knowledge that lived reality, right? But it's, it's, it can be incredibly liberating and powerful to have ways of saying where some of this might have come from and and seeing it as a part of a long and beautifully diverse evolutionary path. But more concretely, I would say, um, I hope it gives us a little more freedom to talk about those experiences. Because, of course, the best advocacy is when it's safe to speak about what it's been like to be you. The best advocacy is that there is a way of being in public where your body is not a shame space, right? Where you can say, I have a vag. Where you can say, I don't know, it depends on the context. You know, where you can, in other words, um, build community around both our shared commonalities and, and our differences. Well, I am a huge fan of creating safe spaces for people to be able to say what their experiences are. And I want to thank you so much, Kat Bohannon, for creating that space today and for your book. Eve, really appreciate having you on. 
Thank you. The book is Eve, How the Female Body Drove 200 Million Years of Human Evolution. My thanks to Susie Britton and Mark Nieto for producing today's segment. You have been listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.